Okay. And he bought a lizard and just did not like the lizard at all. <laughs> and John was like, okay, you know, why did you not like the lizard? And he said, well, it just kept, it kept telling jokes all the time. And like, they weren't even that great of jokes. And I just, it really bugged me. And John was like, a lizard? He said, yeah. So he took it back to PetSmart and was like, he doesn't, he doesn't want this lizard anymore. And the guy at PetSmart was like, that's not a lizard. That's a stand-up chameleon. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is this is a this is a different thing. Um, but what was I getting ready to say? Uh, <laughs> something, something. Hmm. I was gonna say something. Some something, something. Words. Yeah. I guess so. Okay. Well, I can't figure out what it is, so. I might remember later. It was something about that joke. <sighs> I hate when that happens. <laughs> Should I tell the joke again? No, I don't think so. It wasn't. It didn't have to do with the joke. I actually wasn't listening to the joke too much. <laughs> I know you said stand up chameleons, but <laughs> that was about it. I was, I was, my mind was going elsewhere. So the joke was really, really good. But you have to listen to the whole thing in order for it to be funny. That makes sense. Oh, yes. Okay, I remember what it was. Um, ah, how in the world did that happen? Oh, yes, I remember now. <laughs> uh, I was a... <laughs> Gracious. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm starting to wonder if I'm going to see now. I remembered... So, so I was astonished... Hello there, this is Sean, and welcome to Looking Over Life, a podcast where James and I talk about anything from food to friendship to flat earth theory. (laughs) (laughs) James, it's been a little while since we've recorded a full podcast in this way where I'm many miles away from you, so how have you been? Pretty good. Um, Busy, which it seems like that's oftentimes what we say when somebody asks us how we're doing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But in this case, I think it's actually true, um, which we talked a little bit about that in a previous episode that maybe we're a little too busy sometimes. And I feel a little bit like that, but I'm hoping by the end of next week, things will be a bit better. Yeah. We've talked about digital minimalism already. Maybe we need to find a book about some other sort of minimalism or trying to clear out our schedules and find margin. I think that might not be a bad idea. Maybe we'll put that on the slate for a episode in the future. Next is our favorite segment, and James still hasn't given me a name for it, so I'm going to call it the segment where James shows Sean how smart he is. <laughs> so you get to decide how you want to handle that unclear pronoun reference in my phrase there. But okay, what do you have for us this time, James? Tell us something amazing. I ate something extremely disgusting the other day, but it's not what you would think. (laughs) Okay. Many years ago, I was unfortunate enough to eat some poor man's steak that had not been stored correctly and was about halfway rotten. Oh. It It smelled so bad that I was barely able to eat it, but when I was- If it smelled bad, why did you eat it? Well, because when I was young, it was drilled into me that you eat everything that you put on your plate. And so I ate all of it. (laughs) Okay. It, uh, I mean, I didn't expect it to be rotten. I mean, how often do you eat rotten food or that were actually served rotten food? Just doesn't happen that often. (laughs) So I just thought it was just a really bad, it was just a, yeah, somebody was a terrible cook. I didn't realize that it was actually spoiled. And, (laughs) and I remember eating it that, it was really, really uh, tender and soft. <laughs> mm. Later, I realized why that was. Yeah. All that being said, the thing that I ate a couple weeks ago was much more disgusting than that. It was so disgusting, I was just like, uh, I was having uncontrollable gagging. Oh, no. <laughs> I'll, I'll explain what was happening. Recently, my wife bought a couple cans of or canned air, compressed air, whatever you call it, that you use to to blow out electronics. Okay. That's not actually air. It is a hydrofluorocarbon, I believe. It's uh, it's a molecule of carbon, fluorine, and hydrogen 
that is relatively non-toxic and it compresses down really nice mm. into a can because you can't actually put that much air into a can because it'll stay gaseous. Whereas this stuff is actually a liquid if you put a little bit of pressure on it. And so if you take the pressure off, it'll boil and turn into a gas and you have a lot of gas can come out of a fairly small container. Okay. That's maybe a bit more technical detail we need to get into. <laughs> but as part of that, if you take that particular can, anybody that's ever used this canned air, and you blow out something for a long time, it gets really cold. Have you ever experienced that? Yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Well, that's caused by the liquid turning into a gas. So the liquid, I think it's called difluoroethane, maybe. Mm -hmm. That liquid turns into a gas, and for it to go from a liquid to a gas, just like when water goes from liquid to a gas, it requires heat. And so what it does is it literally just kind of sucks the heat out of the air surrounding the uh, the can. That's why it feels cold when you touch it. Oh, interesting. But what you can what you can do is you can take that can, turn it upside down, and instead of gas coming out, it will be liquid, the liquid difluoroethane. Mm -hmm. And whenever it hits something, it then very quickly goes from a liquid into a gas and makes that thing really, really cold. Oh, okay, yeah. There's been times that I have that I've that I've turned it upside down and kind of blown a little bit of it on my hand, and it almost can give you frostbite if you're not careful. But I always wanted to take that, turn it upside down, and blow it on a can of soda to try to to cool it down because I just think that would just be the coolest thing. You take this <laughs> this canned air and you can you can freeze your your can of soda solid. Okay. So I I called Jimmy over. I got a can of soda. It was actually sparkling water. And I did that and blew it for a long time, and it just didn't, it actually didn't really work that well. It was a bit of a failed experiment. <laughs> uh, so then I took the can of, of sparkling water, put it in the fridge. The next morning, I was packing my lunch to go to work, and I took the can and threw it in my lunchbox because I wanted to, to um, yeah, just drink it with my lunch. Mm -hmm. I heat up my lunch, and I crack open my sparkling water and take a sip to have this just delicious lightly flavored sparkling water and it tasted horrible wow. absolutely disgusting and so i remembered that these these this canned air there are people that like to inhale it mm -hmm. to get high and what they do is they put something called a bitterant spelled b i t t e r a n t okay. bitterant and it just makes it it makes it taste really bitter and that way people don't harm themselves by trying to inhale this stuff mm -hmm. what i had done is i had i had blown a bunch of that bitterant all over my can of soda or uh, my can of sparkling <laughs> water and it just tasted it was extremely bitter it wasn't sour it was bitter imagine uh so imagine swallowing an uncoated aspirin and it has kind of a bitter flavor yeah Take that and multiply it by, by about a hundred times, and that's what it tasted like. Wow. So, like, the <laughs> way you got it into your mouth, though, was, like, there was some sort of layer just on the outside of the can where your where your mouth had come in contact with the can, or what? Yeah. Uh, there was just a little bit of residue. Oh, I see. And so I got a, a napkin and got a little bit of water on it and kind of wiped off the the can where my lips would touch. Mm-hmm. It still tasted kind of kind of bitter, but I was able to get the rest of it down. But every time I would lick my lips, I would have that just a uh, uh, burst of bitter flavor. <sighs> it's just nasty. And then, so I finish up my nasty sparkling water, and I think I might have actually went ahead and finished it because I was told that when you have something, you're supposed to finish it. <laughs> <laughs> you have a good mom. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And then... I got out my apple, so I'd also tossed an apple in, oh, and no. I just tossed it in <laughs> on top of, yeah. And I'm like, ah, it's great. You know, I, I love a good apple to kind of finish off my lunch. And so, so I took a bite, and it was it was even worse. <laughs> it was even worse than <sighs> the can of sparkling water. It was just absolutely coated with that nasty bitterant. It was awful. So I got the same thing that I'd used to kind of clean off the can and tried to clean it up. And tried a number of different things, and it just, it it was awful. I would take a bite and chew, and I would just start going, oh. I mean, it was, I mean, it was, <laughs> I mean, it was, it was trying to leave my mouth so hard. Oh, no. So eventually, I think I got through about 
I think I got through about half the apple and I was like, that is it. I just cannot eat any more of this. And so I went ahead and threw it in the trash. Hmm. It, it was just awful. And, but I still had that, that apple had kind of reapplied the bitter compound to my lips. Mm. And so now I had a, a fresh layer of this bitterant on my lips and I tried to like lick it, like hoping, <laughs> like if you lick it, it'll eventually wear off. <laughs> and so I was like, well, I'll just kind of, I'll just kind of grit my teeth and get through this bitter taste and then it'll be fine. Well, it never got any better. It just stayed the same. And so eventually <laughs> it's like, I'm getting desperate. So I go down to the bathroom and I get the get the soap out and just like cover my mouth with soap, hoping that this will get this stuff off. And I rinse out my mouth and it tastes like soap. And the soap tastes way better than the bitterant does. Mm. And so then I finally get my mouth dried off, lick my lips, and I can still taste it. No, that is incredible. I've never heard of anything like that. Yeah, it wasn't nearly as bad, but it definitely was still there. And it was probably an hour or two later until I could not taste anything at all. Okay. <laughs> so it was, uh, <laughs> it was bad. It was really bad. Um, and I did a little bit of looking to see what, like what, what sort of compound tastes so horrendous yet is, I'm assuming relatively non-toxic. I don't think they would just like put poison yeah. in, in this stuff. And it looks like there's a compound called Danatonium or Denatonium. It's sometimes called Bitrex or a version is kind of maybe like a trademark or uh, a brand name. Yeah. And it's the most bitter compound known. Wow. And and all you need is like 0.05 parts per million <laughs> for the one type of the compound and 0.01 parts per million for the other t- type to be detectable. Hmm. And it said dilutions of as little as 10 parts per million are unbearably bitter to most humans. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not sure what how much it was diluted but 10 parts per million I'm trying to think here what that would be that would be like point zero 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 one percent or something like that incredibly small <laughs> yeah it would be unbearably bitter and amazingly enough these these compounds are found in a number of different areas so alcohol if you go to the hardware store you can get denatured alcohol mm-hmm and sometimes that is has been denatured with possibly denatonium or sometimes they put methanol in there to to make it where it's not alcohol that you can drink. I mean, you can drink it, but it's poisonous and it tastes terrible. Mm-hmm. And the reason they do that is because if it's just regular alcohol that you could that you could drink or you could mix with whatever else, then you have to pay an alcohol tax. Oh, okay. But but if it's denatured, you don't have to. Mm-hmm. And one thing I found kind of fascinating is there's this game console called the Nintendo Switch. I don't know a lot about it, but I know it's kind of a handheld game console. Yeah. Kind of like a, a Game Boy, like a modern Game Boy, mm-hmm. I guess, for those, those uh, listeners who remember those. <laughs> and they have these little cards that the games come in. I think they might be about the size of like an SD card, possibly. Oh. And apparently... Some of those were coated with this, uh, with this Danatonium, this this Bitrex, mm-hmm. to prevent children from accidentally swallowing and choking huh. with these little cards. Yeah. So here it says that Danatonium is not known to pose any long term health risks. So it's this thing that you can use to keep people from eating or sticking something in their mouth that they shouldn't put in their mouth. <laughs> um, they also use it in antifreeze. Because antifreeze has kind of a sweet flavor, so if you put this horrendously bitter stuff in antifreeze, then animals won't won't drink it. Mm-hmm. But then I was thinking about that, and there's another thing. Have you ever heard of odorants? Mm, no. You know what an odorant is? Well, I know what deodorant is. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is obviously this is the the opposite of a deodorant. <laughs> yeah. Probably the most common odorant is the odorants that are put into natural gas and propane. Oh, yes. Okay. If you, So if you have propane or natural gas and you turn on the burner and you don't start it, it has that distinctive smell. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing a lot of people just assume that's what propane and natural gas smell like. Right. Well, that's not the case. It's, it's one of two compounds. It's either methylmercaptan or ethylmercaptan. And what that means is it has sulfur in it. It's a sulfur compound. Mm-hmm. Sulfur compounds tend to be pretty nasty smelling. So, for instance, 
I believe the um, compounds that make up skunk spray are a type of mercaptan. Okay. <laughs> they're they're very, very foul smelling or very strong smelling. Yeah. And so you can take just a little bit, just like with this bitterant, you don't need much of it. You can take a little bit of, of ethyl or methyl mercaptan, mix it in with propane, and then if there's a leak, people can smell it. Mm-hmm. And there, there's an interesting story. I was I was working on a chemistry textbook. I learned that in the 1940s, 30s or 40s, there was a school in Texas that just exploded. People that were nearby said, you know, the roof just rose up a number of feet and then the whole thing just collapsed. Mm. And they found out later what it was is there was a natural gas leak underneath the school. They were using natural gas to heat the school. Yeah. And that gas leaked for, for a decent amount of time, and there wasn't enough ventilation to get the gas out. And apparently somebody in the shop had started up a grinder or something like that and had made a spark, and that spark set off the natural gas. And I'm thinking, I think it was maybe 100 to 200 students and teachers were killed. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it was a, it was a really, really terrible tragedy. And because of that, Texas passed a law that all natural gas had to have these odorants added so people could detect gas leaks with their noses Mm -hmm. because before you simply couldn't smell it. And partially due to that, it then became kind of a nationwide thing. And so that's why, or that's part of the reason why when you are using a gas grill, that's why propane has that funny smell is quite likely because that school in Texas that exploded. That's interesting because... It's a very similar smell in the propane here in Peru. So it must have spread, I guess, from that event in Texas to other countries too. I wonder, I I just figured it was the same everywhere as far as which odorants mm-hmm. that they use. But that would be interesting to know if it's if it differs from region to region. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly. To me, it's fascinating that there are these little... Little compounds, little things of chemistry kind of sprinkled around in places you wouldn't really think. Yeah. Just things that, these things that make things bitter and other things that make things smell. And they're both there to kind of help protect us from, from things that we can't detect otherwise. So Yeah, and, and you said at the one point that uh, it was unbearably bitter for most people unless you have the mom that James had where he will just keep forcing himself to to shove this apple down. (laughs) Uh, Well, I didn't get the whole thing eaten. I ate maybe half of it. So, okay. Well, no one, no one will tell your mom. Okay. That's good. Although I think she does listen to the podcast. So (laughs) I don't know. You might, you might be in trouble. Maybe we'll just have to cut this whole section out. (laughs) Uh, This is where I would normally talk about our Patreon page, but I want to do something a little different this time. First of all, thank you to each of our patrons. We're grateful for your support. But I'd like to ask for a different kind of support from each of the listeners this time. Would you be willing to support the podcast by sharing it with someone new? You can do that very easily by sending them a link to our website, lookingoverlife.com, that has all of our past episodes available. Also, if you would like to get an email notification whenever a new episode is posted, you can sign up yourself at the website. And that's all I wanted to say. Just share the podcast in some way with one new person. And thanks for listening. Something that the listeners may not know about you, James, is that you are an author. Okay. But I guess most of the rest of the world doesn't know that about you either. (laughs) Yeah. There's probably a lot of people that don't even know that I exist. (laughs) Uh, This is true. You're an author, but you're, you're, I guess you would still consider yourself an unpublished author at this point, right? But you do have a book. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to talk about your book in this episode. This book is about an experience that you had. Oh, I don't have it in front of me. Do you know what year it was off the top of your head? Yeah, it was 2012. 2012. And it has to do with a long biking trip you took out west. So before we get into some of the details of the book itself, I wanted to ask you first, how did you get into 
mm-hmm. biking or long distance biking. This is not something that I <laughs> yeah. have ever done. Well, it started, I mean, initially, I uh, enjoyed biking when I was a teenager. We had trails back behind our house and I uh, had these yard sale bikes that were barely held together and I would dash down these rocky trails and I really enjoyed riding my bike, but that was about where it stopped. And when I got a little bit older and got a car, started driving, then my biking pretty much stopped. But then there were a number of my friends in the youth group that I was part of that started riding and they said, Hey, you should start riding. And I, I resisted for a little bit, but finally about the time that I was uh, 18, 19, somewhere in there, I started riding. So I bought a mountain bike and started riding and it wasn't too long. And I started upgrading to a nicer mountain bike, which is kind of how it tends to go. And then I bought, I wanted a bike that was a little bit lighter, one that I could ride for a little bit longer distances. Mm-hmm. And so I ordered one on eBay from a guy from California, if I remember correctly. And so it showed up in a box and I put it together. And all of a sudden, uh, before the bikes that I'd had were pretty heavy and they had a lot of suspension, but they weren't very good for long distances. But this bike was made for long distances. I, I found myself riding longer and longer. Mm-hmm. Uh, it started out, I was just I would ride maybe 10 or 15 miles, and that went longer until I was riding even more miles. And I got a road bike. And then finally, about the time that I was 22 or 23, I finally rode 100 miles for the first time wow. in one day with my road bike. So that's kind of where it started. A hundred miles just seems like <laughs> that just seems like such a long distance, and to do it on a bike, I it doesn't it doesn't seem possible to me. But I think maybe what you're what you're getting at is there's a huge difference between going a uh, hundred miles on mm-hmm. what most people would ride as a common bike growing up or whatever than what you were using at that point. So the the equipment really varies. Yeah, it does. And I mean, the biggest thing is really just, you just have to build up to it. It's astonishing what the human body can do if you if you put it under, under pressure. It uh, adapts and can strengthen. So that is, that's really kind of what it was. I, it just over the course of a number of years, uh, I kept pushing what I could do. So I went and did a did a 40-mile ride, and then I found where I could do about a 60 or 70 mile ride. And then I started doing rides up and over the mountains. I would ride from my place over the mountain into West Virginia and then back. It was about 70 miles or so. And I would do that by about uh, lunchtime or a little bit after that. I would start early in the morning and get back by maybe one o'clock, get in about 70 miles. So one of the questions that jumps to my mind right away is why? Like there, what, or what part of it for you was either enjoyable or that you found challenging or inspiring? Like what motivated you to mm-hmm. go a few miles further or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, different terrain or whatever? Like what, what was it that pushed you to, to, I don't know, get more intense, I suppose? I think part of it is I've always enjoyed exploration. Mm-hmm. I've always enjoyed reading stories about people that climbed Mount Everest, people that went to the South Pole, just different explorers. I just found it fascinating. These people that would put themselves through hardship to kind of push the boundaries past what people knew, expand the horizons. And that's kind of what I was doing is I'd never ridden to this one particular trail and I wanted to see, well, what does it look like? And so I would do it. Mm -hmm. And I think there was definitely part of it was just wanting a challenge because oftentimes our jobs can become a little bit mundane and routine. And so it's it's kind of nice to have something to do that can kind of stretch you a little bit, mm-hmm. which during that time, I'm trying to think here, I was going to college in my early 20s and started teaching school. And I also found that biking was a great stress reliever. There's something about exercising, really gets your blood flowing, the endorphins going, and it's one of the best ways, in my opinion, to to unwind after a after a tough day. If if it's been emotionally draining, but you're still physically okay, you're not physically drained. Then going on a bike ride is is really relaxing. Now I wouldn't be going on a hundred miles <laughs> after a long hard day. Yeah, <laughs> those rides are more on the weekends. But I would 
get home from work or get home from teaching school, jump on my bike and, and ride 20, 30 miles uh, before the sun went down. Do you know much about the physiology of it or what it does to your body? Like I've heard, and I've not looked into it at all, that biking uses a lot of your body or a lot of muscle groups more than just your your thighs like you're using mm-hmm. or how how does it affect you well i don't know a lot of the details about the physiology i do know that your heart can adapt to where it can it has a greater um volume it can pump more blood with each with each pump hmm. and so that helps and there's also ways in which your muscles can become more efficient also your muscles can store more energy for longer distances. Mm-hmm. So what's called glycogen, which is basically just stored glucose in your muscles and in your liver. If you are constantly pulling out of those reserves, your body will start putting more and more into there. So when I first started riding, I uh, usually would take along a little bit of something to eat or the ride would be short enough. I wouldn't need anything. If it was just a short enough ride, I didn't have to have anything but water. But if it was a longer ride, I had to have something to eat to kind of keep my blood sugar up because that glycogen would get depleted. And then it was it was like you had bags of concrete for legs. You yeah. just about could not turn the pedals over. And I had a couple experiences like that. Bikers call it bonking. Mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure where the term comes from. <laughs> okay. But it's it's where it's where your your blood sugar uh, your glycogen is depleted, your blood sugar is shot, you don't have anything in your stomach, and your body just has nowhere to pull any energy to run your muscles. Mm. You just can't hardly pedal. Um, and I'm not going to go into this one particular story, but a section of, of road that would normally take me 20 to 25 minutes to bike took me about two or three times that long, simply because I was totally wiped out. Huh. Um, but... After I'd been biking for a number of years, I could go out on a 50-mile ride and take very little. It really wasn't a big deal. I would take some water and maybe a granola bar, and that was usually about enough for 40 or 50 miles. Hmm, that's interesting. And I'm curious, when you, when you started biking more long distance, when your friends were getting you in, into the idea of it, did you have any sort of goal in mind, like I want to get up to X number of miles per day, or were you just doing it kind of for fun and it just gradually got there? Or how did you end up there? It was very much just for fun. Unlike you, I was not married when I was in my early 20s. <laughs> okay. So I had a bit more spare time <laughs> than some people would. So I guess that's part of, instead of spending time with my wife and children, I spent time with my bikes. Okay. The trail that features in your book. Tell us tell us about that. How did you learn about it and give us some some history or some facts about about the trail itself? I don't remember exactly when I learned about it. I I'm guessing I read a blog post somewhere. So during this period which had been kind of the mid to late thousands, I started reading a lot of blogs and I was reading some biking blogs and so you you learn about well this guy did this race and this guy did this trail. I learned about this thing called the Great Divide Mountain Bike Route, or GDMBR. Mm-hmm. I learned that it was from Canada to Mexico, down kind of not along the spine of the Rockies, but it crossed the, the Continental Divide, which goes along the top of the Rockies quite a few times, 20 to 30 times. I see. It's about 2,500 miles. I maybe learned about that in the late, like maybe 2009, 2010, something like that. Mm-hmm. And... I became a little bit of a man obsessed. Mm-hmm. I started trying, you know, reading everything I could about it. I even read some books from people that had done the route themselves. I mean, it sounds a bit cliche, but it sounded like the adventure of a lifetime. Yeah. And it was perfectly aligned with, with what my my hobby was, which is biking. And I, I started thinking, you know what, I bet I could actually do this. So I started talking to talking to friends and family and mentioning, hey, there's this 2,500 mile mountain bike route from Canada to Mexico. I think I'm going to do it someday. And they're like, ah, oh, whatever. You're you're never going to do that. Either they would say that or some people like my mom would say, oh no, don't do it. You're going to get eaten <laughs> by bears and die and whatever. And I told her, I said, I'm actually less worried about bears than I am about 
dying of like, dehydration <laughs> and exposure. Yeah. yeah. Well, I said that to comfort her, but I don't think it really helped. <laughs> no. So the idea, the idea seized you almost from the start as when you first came across mm-hmm. this trail. And then, uh, then maybe around 2010 or 2011, there was a documentary that somebody made about the trail called Ride the Divide. Mm-hmm. And I was able to watch that documentary and it just kind of filled me with even more desire to go. I mean, it's definitely really hard, but you have, you're on your bike. Life is very simple. You just get up, you eat, you ride your bike, you go to sleep, you get up the next day, do the same thing. Mm -hmm. You see this incredible country and I'd never been any further West than Kansas at this point. Okay. And I really wanted to to go out and see the West. Our our family had never had the chance to go out and do a out West trip like some families do. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to see the West and I thought, well, What's the best way to do that than from a bike? Yeah. You're not zipping past on the interstate. You're actually down there. You can talk to people at restaurants. You can see people along the trail. You can see the mountains and the flowers and the trees like nobody that drives around in a car ever would. Back to my friends that I used to, uh, that I rode bike with, uh, we were doing mountain biking mm-hmm. and we would just ride bike maybe, I don't know, five or six times a summer maybe a little bit more than that. And I finally found that I was wanting to ride more than they were wanting to ride. And I was also wanting to ride longer trails. So I ended up just basically riding mostly by myself. Although there was a few people that I got to know that I would ride with, but I wasn't quite sure I wanted to do this trail by myself. Yeah. So I talked to a couple of different friends and there was one guy who had actually ridden, ridden with me earlier, just a couple of years earlier. He was one of the friends I rode with and I mentioned to him kind of on a whim, he was in the same youth group as me. And he was like, huh, that sounds interesting. Yeah, I might be into doing that. Mm-hmm. And as soon as he said that, well, we started preparing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I decided, you know, I better do it now or it's never going to happen. How long went into that planning stage and what did you do? How do you prepare for, how do you prepare for such a long, arduous journey? I'm trying to remember exactly when it was. I think it was about a year before we did it. So we, we rode the trail in the summer of 2012, and I'm thinking it was probably the summer to the fall of 2011 when he said, yeah, I'll do it with you. So first thing we did is we both got new bikes because the bikes that I had, they were mountain bikes, but they weren't quite the, the right kind of bike for this type of, of ride. The bikes that I had were more for shorter rides. And so I bought a new bike that was more suited for that. He bought a similar bike to me. And then I just started doing some research and this particular ride is not like a lot of bike rides you think of. It's not really on the road. It's not really in the mountains. It's basically you're on gravel roads. It's not like you're on these little trails. Okay. But you are on some fairly rough roads up in the mountains that, you know, you might take a Jeep down. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I needed a mountain bike and I also needed to be able to carry all of my gear. So my food carry enough water, sleeping bag, tent, cooking pot and stove, different things like that, mm-hmm. change of clothes. You needed a way to carry all that stuff. And the people that were doing this sort of thing, they were called bike packers. So instead of backpackers, these are bike packers. Mm-hmm. And what they would do is they would actually put these bags on their bikes. So you would have a, a bag that might go inside of the triangle. So where you would put your water bottles kind of there in between your legs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they actually fill that up with a bag and then they would attach one to the seat kind of hanging out over the back wheel. Then they would also have kind of a, a saddle roll type thing that would go and strap onto your handlebars. And then I had a medium sized backpack and between all of those things, I was able to carry all of my stuff. So I would say the majority of preparation was researching and seeing what all I needed. Mm-hmm. So what sort of a sleeping bag did I need? Then also what sort of bike bags did I need? Then those needed to be ordered. And some of those were custom. So I had to get them ordered months ahead of time. Cause some guy with a sewing machine in like Utah had to sew them together okay. and then ship them to me. So that took a bit of time, but yeah, I mean, most of what we did was just ride our bikes a lot <laughs> Yeah, to try to prepare for it, just to get ourselves built up. Cause I knew that I was in fairly good shape, but 
I wanted to make sure that I was in more than good enough shape before tackling something like this because I'd never ridden, you know, I might r- ride a hundred miles one day, mm-hmm. but then I would be so shot that I would not ride for a week. <laughs> sure. And then I would ride again. Well, here you have to ride every single day and you need to be able to ride 40 to 60 miles a day to get it done in about six weeks. Okay. Which is about the time that I was planning on. Yeah. And you need to do that every single day, whether it's raining, whether it's sunny, whether it's windy, whatever. And I just wasn't quite sure that I could handle riding that long, that consistently. Yeah. And so we went on a number of different rides. Um, Yeah, we went on one about 100 miles long one time. It was fairly flat roads, but we did it in just under six hours. Then we did a, a long ride of about 100 miles over in West Virginia that was about a hundred. Yeah, I think it was about a hundred miles or so. And that just, <laughs> that was one of those rides where you finished and you almost had to, like you could barely pedal and you were going downhill. That's how shot I was. <laughs> but, uh, anyway, yeah, we just tried to pack as much biking as we could into that winter and spring. So you were looking forward to 40 to 50 days of doing this over and over and over again. <laughs> and that, that didn't, that didn't uh, deter you. No, no. I mean, that was that's part of why you're doing it. I mean, if you didn't enjoy <laughs> riding, you wouldn't do a trip like this, unless you're a masochist, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You mentioned about the scenery and whatnot from or along the trail. Do you remember a lot of that? I'm curious, thinking about such an intense... Uh, you're just taking demanding so much of your body. Mm-hmm. Were you able to enjoy what was going by, uh, say at day twenty or so? What what you were seeing out yeah. on your western trip? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I mean there were certainly days, and if yeah, uh, if anybody reads the book, they'll see that there were days where it was all that I could do to to get up in the morning and put in my miles and go to sleep. I mean I could barely function. It was not, not fun. There were times that if I would have been closer to home, I would have probably bailed out. But yeah, yeah. you know, so far away from home, it would be a, a terrible pain to go and, and get a flight back home. And that's never very much fun to, to go home and say, yeah, I failed. <laughs> Especially when there was a lot of people that, that thought that we were going to fail and come back with our tail between our legs. So yeah, <laughs> I guess part of my pride didn't really uh, want me to to do that. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. So this was you said in 2012 mm-hmm. when you took the trip, and then sometime after the trip, you decided you wanted to put your experiences into book form. So when did you when did that come about? When did that idea that you wanted this to be a book happen? It wasn't something that came about. It wasn't like a flash of inspiration, which I'm not sure if it, if this book is necessarily even an inspired thing anyway. <laughs> okay. but, but it was, at that time, I had a blog. So I was reading all these different blogs about biking, and I thought, oh, I should have a blog about biking too. So that's what I did. Yeah. And I would post to it every couple weeks or something. It wasn't that regular. So I was going on this trip, and I decided there was a number of people that were interested you know, to know how we're getting along. So I decided I would send out email updates and also post it to my blog as I was writing. Mm-hmm. So we rode about five days. Uh, we were able to get internet. I was at this this uh, person's house to stay in their basement for that night. Mm-hmm. They had a computer we could use. I logged in and, and typed up just a really quick blog post and email and sent it out to everybody. And about five or six days later, we found another place. We stayed in a lodge for the night. And I was able to type up a quick email and blog post there, along with a few pictures. But that was kind of where it ended. Part of it was we were kind of tired (laughs) at that point Mm -hmm. and just didn't want to particularly take the time to search out a computer. I didn't have a smartphone and I wasn't planning on typing it on a tiny keyboard, even if I did. Mm -hmm. So I didn't do any more blog posts or emails the entire trip. So I got home. And I decided, well, I'm going to go ahead and send out email updates of the trip for people to experience it, even though it's late, they'll still probably enjoy hearing about it. Yeah. And so that's what I did. 
I started sending out more emails, and I got about halfway through the trip. I realized that my my blog posts were getting longer and longer. It started out, I did five days in maybe 800 to 900 words. Mm-hmm. And then by the end, I was doing three days, and it was about 1,500 to 2,000 words. Okay. And then I finally started doing one day at a time, and you know, pretty much every single day was 1,000 to 2,000 words, roughly. Oh, okay, wow. And I, th- and I thought, well, I'm putting all this work into typing up these experiences, and it's just going to sit on the internet, and almost nobody's going to ever see it. And I thought it would be kind of neat to, to take a lot of these blog posts and kind of just put them into a book form, so that way there's a physical thing that I have about my experiences. And so that's where things changed. And from there on out, I was actually writing it for the book, even though I was still putting it on my blog. I figured mm-hmm. later I would go back and, and edit it and put it into book form. So that was, it was somewhat of a process where it started very short email updates, which then slowly changed into really long blog posts. And I thought, I really need to just put this into a book. Yeah, yeah. So this is not quite 10 years ago, almost. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> what, around when did you have what you would consider the bulk of or the meat of your your book, your, your writing done? I'm curious because mm-hmm. probably everyone listening has read a book and, and all authors go at books in different ways, I'm sure. But sometimes... I would like to know how much time actually did go into creating this thing that I'm reading. So how long did it take you from yeah. maybe beginning to, to not the end where you are right now, but like to where you had 80%, 90% of what you've got now? I would say it probably took about four or five years. Okay. Something like that. So what I did is I wrote the first first half to two thirds of it relatively quickly, probably almost in 2012 and 2013, mm-hmm. I could probably go back and look at my blog post and see. And then it really slowed down until I was maybe doing a day every couple months or every every other year. But I, I was able to get the whole way through at a certain point. I can't remember when it was. I'm thinking it was about five or six years ago. But then because the first half of my trip, I had, it was fairly brief and I also at that time was not thinking it was going to end up into a book. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I went back and edited that. And that took probably another year or two. And then the last two years has been mostly just tweaking and editing and going back and kind of making the writing a little bit more exciting or at least trying to. <laughs> it's been a long process. And there's times that I'm a little bit ashamed that it's taken me almost 10 <laughs> years. But... I'm like I've been this far. I'm I'm totally going to lean into the sunk cost fallacy and right. just it's like <laughs> you know when I spent this much time, I'm not going to pull the plug on it just because it's just because I'm embarrassed. It's taken me ten years to write this thing. Well, yeah, and it, it it's like I think it must feel a little bit like how it felt for you when you were looking at 2,500 miles on on this trail over six weeks or whatever, like it's incredibly difficult task. And I imagine I've never done it, but I imagine writing a book has to feel a little bit that way where, Mm -hmm. you know, you just get on your bike or you sit in front of your keyboard and you put in the, (laughs) put in the miles for that day. And, and yeah, it can really get long. I'm sure. I would say the main reason it took so long was a number of things, but the main reason I would say is, Probably my mindset about writing back then, mm-hmm. I felt like my writing would be a lot better if I was kind of inspired to write or if I had some inspiration. And so I would wait for inspiration. Well, inspiration didn't strike, but maybe once every <laughs> three to six months. Well, then you don't get very much written. Mm. And the last couple of years, the last, yeah, three years or so, I've had lots of other things that are more important taking my attention, namely family. And so I haven't put as much emphasis on it. That's, that's the main reason the last five years, it's really went a lot slower. I think I also changed my approach to where I just kind of decided I needed to get this done. And I sat down and just put in the work 
But the reason it took so long earlier is I waited for inspiration. Mm-hmm. And it just didn't strike that often. And so it just took me a long time to write it. Yeah, that makes sense. So you really hit it hard, what, this last year or so or last two years? Um, I'm trying to think. Probably the last two years, roughly. I, I don't know exactly. I'd have to go back and look. But probably sometime in 2018 or 2019 is is kind of when I unearthed it again and said, I've I've got to get this thing done sometime because if I don't get it done here soon, it's never going to get done. So. Yeah, the last couple of years I've been working on it a lot more. Yeah. So what stage is it in now? It is almost completely done. Um, I do have a little bit of writing left to do. Uh, I wrote the entire trip, but now I'm doing kind of a conclusion, mm-hmm. which is the last little bit heading home. We, uh, we were able to get somebody, a friend of ours, to uh, to pick us up in El Paso, Texas, and take us home. So I'm writing a little bit about that, but mostly about what the trip meant to me, how it's affected me, how it's changed me, and how it made me view life and view myself differently. Okay. <laughs> so as you can imagine, something that nebulous is a little bit hard to to figure out how to explain. <laughs> so the conclusion is still is still sitting on my computer, needs some work. I haven't worked on it in a couple months. That needs to be done, but the rest of the text it sure, could it be better? Absolutely. But this was something that wasn't even originally meant to be a book. I just kind of made it into one. And I, I've kind of made my piece that it's not going to be a New York Times bestseller <laughs> on the nonfiction <laughs> section. Okay. Uh, like really the purpose that I wrote the book was not was not to show people how amazing I am that I can ride across a continent. It was because there's a lot of people that, find this sort of thing fascinating. So, yeah. you know, people were following, friends and family were following what we were doing very closely, but it's not something that they would ever do themselves. Mm-hmm. Either they can't do it, but they really enjoy hearing other, uh, like hearing about other people doing it. And I thought if there's some way that I can help somebody else experience a little bit of what it was like to do that trip, that was kind of the purpose of the book. It wasn't, I have no no desire to bring attention on myself. It's more, hey, this person rode across the United States, learned some interesting things about himself, about people, saw some amazing scenery, and hey, you can read about it if you want to. <laughs> yeah, well, biking isn't really, it has never been a hobby of mine, and long-distance biking does not seem like something I would ever want to try to do, particularly that long of a distance but I was privileged to be able to read your book, not the conclusion yet. I am still looking forward to that, but the rest of it. And I found it really interesting. And that wouldn't be a book that I probably would have picked up on my own. So I'm really glad that you suggested it to me, as it were. But I think people would find it interesting. And that makes me ask, will people be able to get a copy of it? Like, are you actually going to to publish it in some way? Or self-publish it? I'm planning to just self-publish it. I'll probably self-publish it on Amazon as a Kindle book, like an ebook. Oh, okay. But I am planning to I am planning to go ahead and print out a number of, of paper hard copies. I'm also planning to put pictures. And the, uh, my wife is a designer, mm-hmm. and so she's planning on putting a nice cover on it and hopefully having some nice inside graphics. That's really the main thing that's left to be done is just the designing and typesetting of the book. The The writing and editing is largely done, or at least done enough <laughs> at this point. I haven't quite decided how many copies I want to do. I'm thinking to just do enough for, for friends and family. And if there's more, if there are more people that are interested than, than the number of books that I print, then I might do another print run. But sure. I'm not planning on sinking a huge amount of money on a, you know, printing 500 books or anything like that. <laughs> I, I don't expect it to be super popular. Like I said, if there's a few people that I know read it and are inspired or enjoy it, then I feel like I've accomplished everything I wanted to do. Yeah. Also, it's something that I would kind of like to have to to give to my to my children here, you know, when they're teenagers and they're probably thinking their dad's not very cool. 
<laughs> you can hand him this book and say, hey. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I was thinking something similar that it, it would be really nice, I think, to have something tangible like that that you could give your children or your grandchildren that this, this is something I made about something I did and I'd like to share it with you, my experience. And most of us don't do so well about documenting our lives in a way that we can we can pass on to our children in in the same in this same way. So I think it's I think that's incredible. I think it's great. Mm. So when when will it be done? <laughs> when can I have my copy? <laughs> well, last summer I was saying it was going to uh, last summer. I mean the summer of 2020. Mm-hmm. I was saying well it's going to be ready for Christmas 2020. Well that didn't happen <laughs> for for a number of reasons. We had a new baby, and LaShonda was busy taking care of him, and I was busy studying and preparing to go teach school in the spring, and it just was not that high on the priority list. I am hoping to have it done. I mean, it's late October, so I have only two months to get it done. (laughs) (laughs) I better get started if it's going to be done by Christmas, but that's the current goal. I need to... Right after we're done recording this podcast, I'm going to go up and and tell LaShonda she needs to start working on the book (laughs) ASAP. There you go. Well, we have some guests coming from the States, I think, in January, Lord willing. Okay. And so if you have your printed copies ready ready for purchase, you'll have to let me know because I would dearly love to have one to put on my bookshelf down here. All right. I'll send you one. I'm very excited for the book. I, uh, yeah, I don't know what it takes to to get on the New York Times bestselling list either. But I do think that it, it, just like you said, it's a book that a lot of people would find of interest, particularly people who have a biking hobby. Um, but even people like me who really don't, I think it's, I think it's well-written and captivating and just interesting to see a world that I would, I would never have been part of myself. That's one of the things that I like most about reading books is you can learn something that you would never be able to experience yes. mm-hmm. like any other way, whether it's a view of life from the perspective of somebody different than you or some experience that you'll likely never have. Recently, I read a book by Colin O'Brady called The Impossible First, and it's just a book about this guy walking across Antarctica, Okay, <laughs> and it's basically just snow and ice and he walks across Antarctica completely self-supplied. He doesn't have any, I mean, he hauls everything on a, on a sled behind him for hundreds and hundreds of miles. I'm not sure how long it is. It takes him months to do it. And at times it's absolutely horrifying what he has to go through mentally and physically to accomplish that. And it was a, it was a, it was a captivating book of, of what this man did. I would never, ever want to do it. In fact, <laughs> if I ever wanted to walk across Antarctica, I don't want to now after reading this book. Right. But it was still fascinating to be able to experience that vicariously. Yeah. And yeah. like I said earlier, that's kind of what I'm hoping with this book is people can experience riding the Great Divide vicariously through through what I experienced. Yeah. Do you ride now? No, I don't. <laughs> um <sighs> Basically, even after I got married, I did still ride some, definitely not as much as I used to. But then my first son was born and then I had a bit of a bike wreck, which it wasn't a major one, but it was bad enough that it kind of tore up my knee and I couldn't ride for a while. And so I really haven't done much riding since probably the fall of 2018. Mm. I've ridden a little bit, but not much. I still have my bikes. I did sell one of them. To my dad, he is actually riding his bike a good bit these days. Mm -hmm. I still have the rest of my bikes. I'm not going to sell them anytime soon. So I haven't given up hope. Yeah. (laughs) It's just at one point I was, I felt pretty bad about that. That, you know, I went from this super fit guy who could ride (laughs) 2,500 miles to now a slightly pudgy, uh, some would say middle aged uh, husband and father. Yeah. But you know what? I really, I really don't care in mm-hmm. some ways because my priorities are different now than they were then. Like I said, I wasn't married and in a sense, biking was a way to, to occupy my time and to challenge myself. 
And now I have other challenges that I that I need to face, other other calls on my time. Mm-hmm. And so biking really is not a priority. I mean, sure, do I wish I weighed 20 pounds less than I do now <laughs> and could ride up a mountain without uh, without getting out of breath? Yes, uh-huh. but there's no way I would give up what I have now for that ability. So right. you just have to keep that in perspective. You're on a different adventure. And from what I've seen, you're really enjoying the adventure you're on. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking forward to 10 years from now when you come out with your book about, uh, I don't know, family life or child training or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I've thought about doing another book. In fact, I have a book idea in mind right now. I hope it's going to be done in less than 10 years, <laughs> fewer than 10 years. Yeah. But we shall see. Okay. Well, since you're not writing anymore, I'm curious, do you have any other good stories about biking trips uh, either before or after this this huge trail that you went on? Yes, I do. But if you want to hear that, you're going to have to be a patron so you can listen to our patron-only podcast for what it's worth, because I'm planning to talk about that on that podcast. (laughs) That should about wrap it up for this time. Thanks again to our patrons for supporting the podcast and making it easier for us to keep doing this. We enjoy it, and we hope you do too. The last couple weeks have been pretty quiet in our email inbox, I'm not sure if we scared you off in some way, but if we did, could you write to us and let us know? We do enjoy hearing from you, (laughs) and we're glad for every email, especially ones like the one we got from a listener who told me there was only my half of the audio on the episode I had released. That was a big save. We have one question from a listener that James and I thought we'd like to try to answer here before we close out the episode today. Brianna says, We recently had a discussion about tithing and how little it seems to be taught about, where the young adult generation doesn't seem to think it's that important. Y'all did well at covering the subject. One point y'all didn't discuss, and I was interested to hear your thoughts on. It seems that some people view their tithe as giving their time to the church in teaching Sunday school, or helping on church-related committees, etc. Is there room for that, or is tithing directly related to giving of money, or the first fruits? Thanks again. I always enjoy you all's discussions, Brianna. Thanks, Brianna. I'm glad you enjoy the podcast. James, what do you think about her question? Can I keep my money and instead give my time? Is, <laughs> is that the question? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I'm giving my money and my time currently, so I guess I'm kind of a sucker or something. <laughs> no, seriously, I think that is a good question. And I do think that we should give our time to the church. So the question is, if we give enough time, do we not have to give money? Well, I don't know. The The congregation I'm part of is relatively small. I wouldn't say it's really small, but it's relatively small. And most of the men take part in Sunday school and different committees of one sort or another organizing this thing or that other thing. If everybody said, well, I teach Sunday school and I do this and that and don't give any money, well, there wouldn't, nobody would give anything <laughs> right. because only about a third of the church doesn't isn't involved in the work of the church. So I, I don't know. I don't, I don't think I would give much weight to that argument that you can give time instead of money. What do you think? Well, I wonder if we're understanding the question, right. Um, I wonder where that, that feeling comes from. Like, what is the motivation for saying, I want to keep my money essentially like we're, we're putting words in people's mouths here, but I want to keep my money and instead give my time. I'm a little curious if those people, like I really like to do an audit of that person, you know, and see, mm-hmm. are they actually giving enough time to um, to take the place of, okay, if I was going to give $500, for example, am I putting in that many hours into helping the church in some way? Or mm-hmm. are, with, are they actually saying, can I do something for the church that will soothe my conscience enough that I can use my money on buying this thing that I really want that I couldn't afford if I was actually tithing. And mm-hmm. I've been there. So I, I am a little curious if that's maybe where that question comes from is something that is more selfish, 
self-serving in some way. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, and, and, and we have to search our own hearts to figure that out or, or have the Lord search them for us and tell us, I don't think the Lord is honored with that sort of, um, oh, the word isn't balanced, but that sort of distribution mm-hmm. of our resources. I think about the the teaching in Romans where we're taught to give our bodies as living sacrifices and that is holy, acceptable, pleasing to the Lord. And that idea, I think, matches better with who Jesus was. And, and in a sense, you're giving everything you've got to the Lord. Mm-hmm. And so then if we're coming from that perspective or coming from that place, then giving a tithe into the church is simply deciding I have all of these resources from God and some of them I need to devote to family life. Some of them I need to devote to church life. Some of them need to go directly into the church coffers to cover whatever the the works of the church are. And it, it, it becomes a completely different paradigm, I suppose, in the way you view your resources, whether it's money or time or whatever. We don't want to put words in people's mouths or in their minds, but we do <laughs> We do tend to have a tendency to excuse away or find excuses for things we don't want to do. Well, I don't need to do this because I do this other thing, and so I'm just going to turn this down. I don't need to tithe because, well, I teach Sunday school. But, yeah, I like what you said. Let's say, yeah, somebody's giving $400 per month, which I think that's probably a reasonable tithe for what a average income is, maybe. And Okay, you heard it here, people. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just kind of shooting the middle of the road here. Okay. And so if you if you assume that, then okay, four hundred dollars, let's say twenty dollars an hour. You say you're making twenty dollars an hour, so that's twenty hours. So are you spending twenty hours per month minimum on church work, or are you doing something else? Yeah, um, yeah. Or are you doing fewer? I could be wrong, but I'm guessing that most people are not spending 20 hours per month on church work. Yeah. But, okay, let's assume that this person that might have this question, can I give my time instead of my money, is being genuine for whatever reason. Maybe they do not have money to give for some one reason or another. And they do want to give to the church, and this is the only way they can. I would say, if you're in that position, I don't think you need to feel bad about being there. But mm-hmm. go to your go to your deacon then, and be open and honest about it, and say, I don't have this sort of resource to give, but I do want to give to the Lord. Can I give my time by doing something? And I guarantee you that your deacon has work for you to do, and you can put in your 20 hours (laughs) per month. He would be glad for that. Yeah, and that's the thing. When it comes to the Christian walk, it's all about not one extreme or the other. Mm -hmm. I mean, you shouldn't say, well, I'm going to give $1,000 a month, but then if they need Sunday school teachers, well, I've already served the church by giving a whole bunch of money. I'm not going to do that. That's the other extreme. So we're not saying tithing or serving the church is only monetary. That's obviously that's not true. Yes. But then the other ditch is I'm going to serve the church. I've got enough money to give, but because I teach Sunday school and run the sound equipment on Sunday mornings, well, then I don't need to, to give any money. That's the other ditch. And it's all about moderation or just finding that balance. And, and, and that's oftentimes what's a little bit difficult is you have to find that balance and then probably what's even more difficult is you have to search your own heart and have the Holy Spirit reveal to you what your heart is so you can see whether your motives are actually true or whether it's a selfish way to to salve your conscience, like you said. Yeah, that's well put, and I agree with it. And coming back to Romans 12, Romans 12, 1 ends with the idea that giving your whole self uh, and like Jesus said, the first or the greatest commandment is to to love the Lord your God with 
your body, soul, mind, spirit, every part of you. Romans 12, 1 uh, says that that's just your your reasonable or your expected service. Like that's just what we are mm-hmm. to do because of who we happen to be. But what's interesting to me then is the verse following that 12, 2, Romans 12, 2, that says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you could prove what's good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so to, that for me ties very well into this concept of tithing, whether it's with one resource or another, is to be sure that I'm not in some way trying to be conformed to the world, whether it's buying a thing or spending money on some consumable for myself or whatever, but instead being made new in my mind, in my heart, so that I can do what's good, acceptable, pleasing to the Lord. We have another question related to tithing in our email inbox, but it's a bit more involved. So we will chat about that in another episode. It has to do with the difference between married people and single people and the way they have to plan for things financially. And I think it's an interesting question and James and I are both looking forward to to chewing on that a bit. If any of you have thoughts related to that specifically, we'd be glad to hear from you before we uh, before we get into that discussion. James and I are headed over to record our patron only podcast for what it's worth, and like he he teased there, he's been sitting on a story for a while that he's excited to share. So I'm looking forward to hearing hearing it. I haven't heard it yet either. And you can find that episode of For What It's Worth at patreon.com slash lookingoverlife. Don't forget to share the podcast with a friend and let us know what you think of Brianna's question or the other question that we're looking forward to talking about later. Send us an email at lookingoverlife at gmail.com. All right. See you later. Ciao. Okay, I think that's good. Do 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 do.